Recently, I was given a, a huge gift. I had some time in my hands, and I asked my wife, what should I do? And she said, well, you like to talk. Uh, you love to listen. Uh, you've made a career out of asking good questions. You're always curious, and you're curious about all sorts of things. So why, why don't you do a podcast? Crazy idea, but then, you know, uh, I just started thinking about it. And yeah, it was actually pretty, pretty true, even if I do say so myself. Of course, creating a podcast is not something you can do at least reasonably well in your spare time. And once I started getting into it, well, I, I really got into it. And you know what I discovered? How many conversations in life are, well, they're superficial. You, you, you meet somebody at a cocktail party, and what are you going to talk about? Well, I do this, I do that. Or you talk about the weather. Or I remember when I lived in Los Angeles, uh, you sit around uh, lunchtime with uh, colleagues, and what do you talk about? You talk about the weather. And in L.A., the weather is always the same. Blue sky and 75 degrees. Oh, yeah, and the other thing you talk about is traffic. And traffic is always the same. It is not good at all. So, you know, conversations, real conversation, trying to understand who people are. You know, where, where have they gone? Where are those real conversations about who we are as people, how we became the person we became, the journeys that we're on, the kind of career we're crafting, our personal and professional lives, all these things that I think people care about, the people people are longing for are things we, we, don't, we don't talk about, not nearly enough. Um, you know, even when I teach, you know, my day job, I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, I like to uh, challenge uh, my students to think differently. Um, I just like to think about how so many of the things around us, you know, things that seem to be really disconnected are actually, uh, they're not that way at all. It's kind of like a mindfulness thing, right? It's mi mindfulness is everywhere. Beauty is everywhere. Creativity is everywhere. The truth is that people craft their lives. Our lives are not given to us. Uh, we have a chance to craft them, to create them. And the stories of how we do it and how we get around to, to wherever it is we are, to, uh, wherever, wherever it is we get to. So this podcast is uh, largely unedited because, you know, life is that way as well. We don't get to uh, fine-tune everything we do or we say. And I thought, well, this podcast should be, should be that way when we talk to people that are, that are interesting. So the podcast is for everyone. It's eclectic because, uh, you know, they're just... Yeah, there's some themes that are going to emerge over time, but, but the conversations are going to be driven by curiosity, by wanting to really understand who we are and how, how we got there. So intimate and informative conversations with fascinating people you may not know until now, because everyone has a story. Welcome. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and this is The Sidcast. I was sitting in my office the other day thinking, boy, this podcast thing is really, really fun. Let me get some cool guests, and who should I invite? And uh, next thing you know, I have a, uh, an email that comes in from this guy, Howard, uh, Howard Anderson, and uh, he's, uh, he's asked me something or other. I don't even remember what it was. And, uh, and that's the eureka moment. I said, Howard, Howard Anderson, he would be a fantastic podcast guest. And I said, and so I, I, I returned that email and I said, never mind this and this and this that you asked me about, but, you know, I'm doing this podcast. Are you interested? He says, I'm in. Uh, that's the first thing that, that he said. Uh, and so why, why would I want Howard Anderson? You know who this guy is? Howard Anderson, he does teach at Tuck. He teaches at MIT. He teaches at, uh, at Harvard Business School. He teaches at Brown University all uh, part-time. This is, this is his third career. His uh, first career was um, he started a company called Yankee Group. 
which uh, was a um, an educational subscription only uh, company that focused on uh, analysis of what was going on in the high tech world. And he started this, you know, a few decades ago when uh, when we weren't in the same high-tech world uh, that we are today. So he actually knew Bill Gates when, you know, Bill Gates was doing his regular job. He knew Steve Jobs. More recently, he knew uh, or knows Zuckerberg, Larry Page. So, you know, this is a guy that uh, he knows where all, the, where all the bodies are buried, so to speak, and uh, is a great storyteller. And so I thought, let's, let's bring him on. Let's, uh, let's have him kind of share with us a little bit about, you know, what he knows about these people, what he thinks about technology, what he thinks about um, um, entrepreneurship and you know the fact that he teaches in in a business school is interesting in and of itself now because uh, you know he's he's a born entrepreneur um, and has always been that always been that way but what he teaches is uh, he calls it sales and it's a funny thing this is going to be shocking for anyone who's not you know taking an MBA degree or has recently taken an MBA degree the idea that studying sales is is a weird thing to do in business school only would come up from someone who who uh, you know is immersed in the business school world there's nothing actually more important or hardly anything more important because our lives are about selling you're selling something to someone when you communicate with someone when you talk to someone when i'm when i'm talking to you right now introducing you to this podcast episode i'm actually, i'm selling you also i'm selling you in the idea to keep on listening so you can hear about this crazy guy Howard Anderson and all the stuff that he knows. So selling skills are like critical for everything that everything that we do. When we talk to our kids and we want our kids to do something, clean up the room, uh, go go study harder. Uh, well, we could say it all we like, but we need to be able to communicate it in a way that the message gets through, and that's a form of salesmanship. So uh, yeah, and and so let's not underestimate how important that is. It's in everyday it's in everyday life, and he's uh, he's great uh, he's great at it. Howard. Uh, you know, his, uh, oh, I didn't tell you his second career. So his first was creating this Yankee group that he ended up selling to, to Reuters uh, a number of years ago. His second uh, career is as a venture, uh, a, a venture capitalist, um, Battery Ventures out of Boston. And uh, he's, uh, he invests in all sorts of uh, companies, has a really good track record in doing that, which, uh, by the way, don't want to let this get to his head, but he did have a chance to invest with this guy, Mark, uh, Zuckerberg, who uh, showed up uh, in the very earliest days of Facebook, uh, pitching uh, pitching Howard and his team uh, for some venture capital money, and uh, and they said no, uh, this thing doesn't have a chance. And so you know you're not always right in these in these things. You learn a little bit of uh, you learn a little bit of, of uh, humility along uh, along the way. So uh, Howard is uh, Howard Anderson is a great uh, uh, a great guest for us on the, on the Sidcast. He's exactly the type of person that many people never heard of the guy, never knew about him. But once uh, once we bring him in the room and start chatting with him, you're going to want to uh, you're going to want to know him, and you want you're going to want to learn more about him. So uh, uh, let's bring Howard in the room. Okay, we're here with Howard Anderson and on the Sidcast. Welcome, Howard. It is a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I like the sounds of that. You have, uh, we've known each other for a few years because you've been teaching at Tuck at Dartmouth and uh, I've done all kinds of interesting things. But, you know, when, uh, when we started thinking about bringing you in and kind of learning a lot of, of your history and stuff you did, it turns out you grew up in Atlantic City. So I got to start, I got to start there because I was a big fan of Boardwalk Empire. Remember that? Show? Yes, I knew a couple of those people. <laughs> Literally? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in Atlantic City? Uh, Atlantic City was a gambling uh, resort before it was legally a gambling resort. It was. Uh, there was a big nightclub in town called the 500 Club. 
Sinatra would play there pretty much every other year. There was a back room where there was gambling going on. One year, the state police raided the place, embarrassing the local police. How did the states know there was gambling if the local police didn't know? After gambling came in, five of six mayors went to jail. Wow. What one, happened to the one guy? Uh, he was related to me, believe it or not. <laughs> and he was a very frugal guy. He sent three kids through Princeton, and he never made more than $18,000 a year. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Uh, and his fingerprints weren't on anything. No, no, no. <laughs> very impressive. <laughs> so... Um, uh, what, uh, what what decade are we talking about? Like the last um, days. I left there in 1962. Okay. To go off to college, and been back infrequently ever since. But you have you have been back. What, so what brought your parents there to Atlantic City? Why they settle there? They were from Philadelphia, and my after the war, my father wanted to start a wholesale grocery business, and he thought he would go down to Atlantic City, which had always been the resort for Philadelphians, and. Um, like the weather and state. Was he there during the gambling boom? Uh, yes, he was. And um, the gambling, actually the bill that passed gambling was written by one of my high school classmates. Really? And um, the first time gambling was tried, it didn't pass the state legislature. Mm -hmm. And then they got a pretty good lobbying firm and put some money behind it. And it passed with the idea that it was only Atlantic City, and the money would go for education all over the state. Yeah, the thing about Atlantic City that you notice when you go back there is it's still not in great shape. There's a lot of um, poor areas, and there's still crime. And then, I mean, I haven't been now in probably a decade, but I remember you see these gleaming big, you know, resorts and hotels and casinos. Uh, you have the beautiful boardwalk. It's a little tacky, but it's still a beautiful boardwalk. The ocean is the ocean. But there, you just go a couple of blocks away, and it doesn't look so good. Uh, it had all the big city problems and was never a big city. Yeah. High unemployment, yeah. high crime, um, but a beautiful boardwalk and not a bad place to grow up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you went to college after, I guess, to Penn. How come there? Um, my father took a protractor, drew a circle around Atlantic City, and said, that's 60 miles, find your college. I did manage to point out that half of that 60 miles was the Atlantic Ocean, and he said, if you can find a college out there, you can go. So he sounds like quite the character. Um, the last angry man, yes. Uh -huh. So any, any stories you want to share about growing up and uh, with kind of this really, he was, a, he was an entrepreneur, he was a business guy. and Never graduated from high school. Yeah. Um, and uh, there were three kids. I was the middle child, and um, he was a tough but fair guy. Yeah. I remember one day I was about five jumping on a bed, and he holds his arms out, jump. I jump, he moves out of the way, splat. Moral of the story, don't trust anybody, not even me. Uh, and my wife thinks that's just a terrible story. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tough love. Tough love, and oh, wow. So did you take that lesson to heart? You're a pretty nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, he was a pretty tough guy. Yeah. I mean, I remember he would get into fistfights with the truck drivers from time to time, and he got two out of three, and he kind of, you know, did fine. But yeah. he was a tough guy, and it was okay. What was your mom like? Uh, my mother was the... 
last of the Jewish princesses. <laughs> um, her father had been in real estate, and that worked out pretty well till the Depression came. Uh-huh. And the Depression was one of the defining moments, I think, in their lives. And in fact, it infected my own. Uh, my father would tell me he never had money for a bicycle, but he used to take his five-cent allowance and give it to some other kid to let him ride around the block once or twice. So that kind of um, realization of adversity, I think, infected how I look at risk. Really? So, for example, um, I mean, what, what are you thinking of? Uh, when I started my company, Yankee Group, I always made sure we had six months of cash in mm-hmm. the bank. Uh, and if we never took another dime in the rest of the year, we would be fine. Yeah. Um, the more outrageous your business, the more conservative your balance sheet has to be. Well, that's, that, that's interesting. So... Um, uh, we'll we'll get to the the creation of the company and kind of that that story in, in a second. But um, uh, you were at you were at Penn. You graduated nineteen sixty six. Nineteen sixty six, and Penn was as it is today, great school. You met a lot of interesting people, no doubt. Uh, what what were the classes like? Were you one of the guys that showed up to class a lot, or you... oh yeah? But we wore ties and jackets to class. Ties and jackets. Ties and jackets because uh, Penn has this. Uh, alleged business school called Wharton, and many of the friends of mine were Wharton undergraduates, yeah. and we were practicing. So, yes, we wore ties and So you practice for business. you got to dress for business. And in those days, Absolutely. it's pretty funny because, you know, your whole career took you into tech, and you're still in that world and where people show up in flip-flops and shorts if they want to. And, uh, and you went to school wearing a, wearing a jacket and tie. Um, those were the times. Those were the times. Um, and after college, what did you do? Uh, right after college, I went to a, uh, uh, a small English-speaking school in Cambridge called the Harvard Business School. Uh-huh. And uh, you have uh, subsequently taught at HBS and a bunch of other places uh, as well, um, which must be, must be and, and, and still is kind of a real fascinating thing to go back and be in front. I mean, I did it on a very small scale, not Harvard, but I, I grew up in Canada, Montreal, and I went to um, um, Concordia University, a school right there in Montreal, because it turns out in most of the world, you don't go off to school. You stay and you live in your, in your parents' house. America's kind of this weird thing that you go off to school, and we are not in a bad way, just really different. And um, um, then I... Then I, I I had a year in, in, in London, London School of Economics, and then they hired me back to be a, an instructor at the school like I was 23 years old. And I was like laughing all the way. I could not believe it. What am I going to possibly? I have all this one year of life experience. I'm going to come back and teach kids something. It was really kind of amazing. I always said that I wanted to teach at all the schools that would never have accepted me the first time. <laughs> in fact, uh, when I went to Penn, they said, uh, you're kind of creative. Could you come up with a class cheer? What do you mean? Like, tough as nails, hard as bricks, Pennsylvania 66. So I came up with Harvard's the school that turned me down, Cornell, Princeton, Yale, and Brown. His son, you've got an attitude problem. <laughs> so, uh, but you did go to HBS. Yes. Uh, what was that like? Um, HBS was terrific for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which it expands your horizons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to HBS 60 years after I got out of college, 60 days after I got out of college. Mm. So my 
retailing experience was I sold ice cream on the boardwalk. Not really mm -hmm. a lot of experience. But mm -hmm. there was a war on. And the Vietnam War said that if you had a student deferment, you could keep going. So we were not taking uh, two, three, four years off mm. between undergraduate and MBA. Right. Yeah. So you went straight to uh, school. What, where, what year are we at, just so we're... Got out in 68. Okay. And in 68, the war, Vietnam War, was still going on. It's 40 years today um, since, I think, um, Bobby Kennedy was killed, the summer of 68, Martin Luther King, the summer of yeah. 68, the um, Democratic Convention in Chicago. Right, the riots in the streets. Yes. Yeah, wow. So... And you graduated from the kind of the, the classic business school just when that was going on. <laughs> um, one of my great forms of uh, fun at school was going to job interviews. I didn't have any money, so that was my cheap entertainment. And you got a free dinner off it. Oh, a free dinner and sometimes even lunch. So I sent a letter once to Henry Ford II. Dear Mr. Ford, hmm. I am a second-year student at the Harvard Business School. Uh, I've got a great interest in cars, so forth and so on. I get a letter back. Dear Mr. Anderson, our vice president of transmission systems will be on campus in three weeks. Please sign up. I sign up. I go to the interview room. Across the table is a big, strong, beefy man who looked like he had been a Big Ten lineman. Yeah. He had probably been a Big Ten mm -hmm. lineman. And he says to me, Howard, I, I see you and Mr. Ford have a nice little correspondence going. <laughs> and it hits me. The message has come down from above. Speak to young Anderson here. He's interested in cars. And um, so we're skidding along very well. And he says, uh, talks about what's going on on campus. And about the time... McNamara was being, you know, uh, stoned on campus and whatever, and he's talking about the revolution. And I said the one phrase that would guarantee I would never be hired. Okay, what was that? History may show, said I, that Ralph Nader was a great man. Ah! Oh, my God. You said that to a car guy. <laughs> a car guy. And I... And I Figured, well, he'd say, why? And I would say, he works with the system. He's not trying to burn America down. And I see this frost across the table. Yeah. And this frost looks to me like it's going not to be uh, warmly received. And I said, it doesn't look like we'll take this to the next step where you invite me to Dearborn, you, Michigan. You, you said that to Oh, yeah. You, you, you can said, just well, see. It was clear. Oh, I, it was coming. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't back... Uh, backpedal quickly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, so he says, well, I'm sure you're going to have a wonderful career. And I said, well, you know, this is a 45-minute interview, and we've got 30 minutes to go. I've got a Mustang on the parking lot, and I'm having a little trouble with the timing. You did oh, not. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and why don't we go up there and flip open the hood? I've got a full set of aprons. And wait a minute, quality is job one, right, Ford? And you're in transmission systems. And... Um, I couldn't talk him into going out to having a look at my car and using the other 30 minutes productively. Oh, my God. I could just, I could just see that. And this former Big Ten lineman 
uh, could have lifted you up and thrown you uh, heck out of that room. Yes, he could have. And um, Ford was a big employer. But I realized then I probably wasn't going yeah. to be someone destined for Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, because you were you're you're a kibitzer, you're a creative thinker, and you don't. Whatever I the... was, that's not what they were looking for. Where where did that come from? I you, don't were, know. Were you born just... this way, as Lady yeah, Gaga so. says? A little contrarian. <laughs> a little contrarian. However, once in a while, the contrarians are right. Yeah, especially when it comes to kind of a big part of your career in tech. Well, it gets even funnier because right out of uh, Harvard, when I started my company, I started to do a little teaching, and I was teaching at Babson. And one of the students one day said to me, uh, Mr. Anderson, I think we were contemporaries. He called me Mr. Anderson. It was fine. I missed class the other day. I said, well, th that happens. Was there a reason? Well, I overslept. But... <laughs> Son, the class was at four in the afternoon. Edsel Ford the second. this was. Oh, my. You have quite a thing with the Ford family. That's right. 25 years later, I'm teaching at MIT, and I have Henry Ford III in my class, the son of Edsel Ford II. I said to him, Henry, you're a much better student than your father was. <laughs> he says, I hear that a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's very funny. So what, what do you drive? What's your, what's your car now? Um, there's two kinds of men, Sid. Okay, let's hear it. Those that have Porsches and those that want Porsches. And I take it you have a Porsche. I've been driving these wonderful German cars for 15 or so years, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I take it you don't vacation in Detroit all that much. Uh, I'm not invited, um, but I'm, well, I have a, no, time out. I have a GMC truck. Okay. There we go. All right. Well, that's some, that's some Detroit street cred right yes, there. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, okay, you didn't do so great in that interview. Actually, you did pretty well. You, had a, you have a great story to share. That's right. And, uh, you know, you, you learned, actually, that, you know, this kind of classic button-down Fortune 500 type company might not, be, might not be for me. Actually, getting that type of insight so early in your career... Because that's really valuable. There's a lot of people that think, you know, we're in business school here at Tuck at Dartmouth, and, and you know the business very well. Uh, how many of our students want to go to McKinsey and Bain and BCG because, well, that's kind of what they think they need, uh, what they want. And then they discover some, it's great, they, they work great, they become partners, they move on, whatever. But for others, they realize they never should have done that. But they've, they're discovering that 18 months and two years and three years after they after they left business school, which is one of the times you're the most marketable you're going to be until you actually have accomplished something in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you started your business. Um, how soon after then? Um, I went to work after I graduated for a small little technology company in East Cambridge. The president had just gotten a master's degree in electrical engineering from MIT, and we were building products that were in closed-circuit television. We were making some early facsimile products. There was a medical division, all of which was on $188,000 a year in revenue. Wow. Those were the days, or this was like the most frugal company in history? No, they weren't very frugal. They had actually gone public a few months before I got there. The stock had gone public at 3. It was now at 21. So I spent about a year and a half there. And then I started my own company. And why did you start your company? The funny thing is about stock options, and the rules have changed, but if you were issued stock options at $21 and the price goes back to 3 
the rules at the time said you had to exercise all your options at the first price before any new options could be exercised. So I did a probability analysis. What's the chance the stock goes from three back to 21, at which point, even if I sold, I wouldn't have made anything. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's not going to happen. I better start my own company. Mm -hmm. And did you know what you wanted to do? I didn't. I started out doing kind of one-person consulting, a company called the Yankee Group, and the Yankee Group originally was me. One moment. So you, the name of the company is the Yankee Group? Yes. Um, this was in Boston? In Boston. So how does that work? I mean, uh, t for people in the South, we're all Yankees up here in the North, but there is a rather big difference between Boston and New York when it comes to that one particular word, Yankee. Yes. My license plate is Yankee, and people to this day manage to always wave to me with one finger. Uh, <laughs> this is in Boston, Boston. where, yes, in where Boston. you are a lot. But there is, there's some good attributes to the name Yankees. Yankees are don't show everything. Yankees are economical. Yankees have a set of values. And I always said, if I went down south, they would just call us the damn Yankee group. <laughs> so uh, actually, it's a great name when you think about it. The fact that you could get it um, nowadays, if you start a company, you want a URL, domain name, everything, the trolls have taken everything. Yes. Um, um, which is, uh, I was talking to someone uh, who was a serial entrepreneur, and he started a new company, and every name he th was thinking of was, was taken. He finally came up with, he says, it's the last four-letter word uh, that uh, sounds good that, that he can get. Um, he couldn't even get the .com, but he got .io or something else. It's called Yaza, uh, which doesn't really mean anything, but he thinks it sounds good, and maybe it does. You wanted a name that people would remember. Mm -hmm. And Yankee Group fit the firm, and... There was the Boston Consulting Group, for example, and it was the idea of a group of like-minded, focused individuals. And that right. was the right. – and I never was sure I would do business outside of Boston and New England. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be not the case, but it was a good name and one that people remembered. So who was in the group? Originally, it was me, my pet bunny, and my pet hamster. Um, but then I started to add people. I remember – we started to do some reports, and I uh, needed a typist. We were obviously early word processing, and some kid comes in, sits down, types 60 words a minute, talks fast. What's your story? MIT. And before that, Bronx High School of Science. I said, you cannot be my typist. Why not? I refuse to work for a company where the brightest person is the typist. I'm going to make you an analyst. And in fact, Boston is one of the few places on earth where real intelligence can be almost a commodity. Mm. And by being in Cambridge in Boston, I could pick some very, very talented people, high motivation, not necessarily terribly experienced, but really quick studies. Right, and th this was, th that was true then, and it's true even more so now. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what, what was the kind of the, the, the business concept? What was the Yankee Group all Early about? Early on, we did cons little consulting projects, and then there was an event that was kind of interesting. Um, I was doing some reports on electronic mail and facsimile, and I thought, what a bright boy am I, because if I didn't have a consulting assignment, I could do these reports. And then I realized that maybe that was a real business. 
I was driving home one day in my $850 used Volkswagen, and I heard on the radio that AT&T had been sued by the Justice Department. And I thought about it, and the next morning I did the only obvious thing. Mm -hmm. I called up the New York Times. The only obvious thing, okay. And I said, I have just finished a six-month study of the effect of the Justice Department suit on AT&T. And, of course, you just heard this the day before. Oh, 12 hours before. 12 hours before, okay. And the New York Times said, we need that report. We, no one knows anything The study about was about AT&T's... Oh, no, the study hadn't been written. I, I know, but yeah. what did you say? The study dealt with the impact of the Justice Department suit on oh, so exactly what was in the news. Absolutely, just exactly. And the Times said, well, send it to us. Well, I can't send it to you. But I can send you the executive summary. Oh, please do that. So I sat down and wrote the executive summary. That Sunday, the New York Times leads with a four-page article on the impact of the suit on AT&T, quoting this young man from a company called the Yankee Group in Cambridge, who has all sorts of ideas what this is going to be. And then I took the New York Times, cut up the article into a brochure, and sent it out, and was selling this report for $1,000. And I got a mailing list, and I sent it out. And two weeks later, my mailbox was overstuffed with checks for $1,000. For the report that had not been written. The report that was in process. In process, excuse me, that's right. For which and the executive summary had been yes, created. Yes, well, I used the executive summary to uh, build the report. And the report was called The Unbundling of AT&T. Uh -huh. And it talked about what Bell Labs had to do, what the operating companies had to do, what AT long lines would have to do, what the impact would be overseas. And the report was pretty prescient. Um, about halfway through, there's a major conference I was invited to. And I'm on the podium, and one of the other speakers is the president of AT&T. I am showing three or four color slides about impact, market share, and I look over, and the president is writing all this down, the president of AT&T. I stop the conference. Charlie, what are you doing? <laughs> Howard, this is at least as good as what my guys are coming up with. And of course it was. The world was changing. And the fact that you were young without much of a reputation could be overcome. So that was the beginning of starting a service that would deal in technology matters that I could sell everywhere in the U.S. to all the vendors, to the big users, to the European companies, and to the Japanese companies. So you, just, you just said that the fact that you could be a, um, a, a young guy who's got some ideas but not known wasn't that big of a barrier, but uh, it probably was. I mean, it required some kind of radical surgery that you did, some creative work that you did to get you even, I mean, how would you get, even get invited there? Uh, it just was, you know, took advantage of, a, I mean, it, the timing was there, and you did something about it. We would, we were very available to the press. Mm -hmm. uh, we could talk pretty knowledgeably about some of these issues. So the press reads the press. If I'm putting together a major conference, Clearly, I want the president of AT&T. Maybe I want the president of General Telephone and Electronics. Uh, maybe Bell Canada, which was a spinoff of Western Electric. Mm -hmm. And let's invite this company that seems to have built a reputation here. Right. And uh, one thing led to another. Yeah. 
And, and that was the, that's really the takeoff moment, the point of inflection that got you some renown. We were on the... And revenue. Yeah. Oh, yeah, more revenue. Uh, we were on the Inc. list of fastest growing companies three consecutive years in the 70s. So the company... How long developed. was that after, like th these events you're describing, these are things that kind of got you there, got you, yeah. um, created your name and your reputation. Um, I took, see, the trouble with consulting... It's a good business to get into, a better business to get out of. To double your business in consulting, you've got to double the number of people. I didn't see any leverage there. But if I am in a business of providing intelligence, once I hit break even, 90% of the new revenue could flow to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. The company, from its very inception, was wildly profitable. In fact, so that local cocaine dealers would come and ask how I could get those kind of profit margins <laughs> that they might emulate. In, interesting to be a role model, Howard, um, yes, for absolutely. all kinds of groups. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's take a short break. We're talking to Howard Anderson. We'll be right back. We're back with Howard Anderson. Howard, you were just telling us about the very early days of the Yankee group and kind of the, the story that... Uh, uh, with the New York Times and AT and T, and so I, I got to go. Just go back and ask you, what did your what did your mother and father say about that? They they were proud of you, no doubt. Remember, they were children of the Depression, and their view was, if you're smart, why aren't you going to medical school? Well, I, I don't particularly like medicine. I noticed that when I did my studies at night, um, the science was not necessarily what I wanted to do first. Um, and I didn't really want to do that. So um, what's left, law school or business school? And I kind of was accepted at Harvard, and the world lost a mediocre lawyer when that happened. Yeah. yeah. By the way, do you think you needed to go to business school to do what you did, which is really being an entrepreneur? Yes, I do. I think that I didn't understand venture capital or whatever, um, but I did understand that um, you, you do see a bigger horizon mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. You see things that you didn't know exist. Um, I think business school was probably the best two years of my education. I learned things. It expanded my horizons. Um, I realized that the world is just one big high school, and if you can figure your way around as a senior in high school, the world isn't all that much more complex. So it, it, it you know, broadens your horizon. So part of it is gives you more self-confidence. Uh, you get a better sense of what is out there, what the potential is, things that maybe you didn't even know existed. And then you learned knowledge and information as well. Those are the kind of the key. You put the pieces together. Yeah, because I'm thinking about today, there's so much information everywhere. And, you know, I teach in a business school, and, you know, you do that as well. Uh, so we don't want to be anti-business school, and I'm not. But getting the information is not so difficult anymore. Uh, seeing what the potential world can offer or do, that, that still does, I think that still comes from surrounding yourself with interesting people where a lot of all kinds of characters and interesting people show up uh, to, learn, to learn from, um, learning how to navigate through that. Um, that. I mean, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, but what, what's your take? How do you look at it? It's nice to be there at the inception. Mm -hmm. um, Early on, you're not sure what succeeds and why. I kind of gravitated towards technology. All, t all strategy in business revolves around the idea of upsetting the status quo. 
The world is comprised of attackers and defenders. I always found the attackers' new companies much more interesting than the defenders. So having sent one letter to Henry Ford, I then sent the next letter to the president of IBM. And I said, I am a second-year student at the Harvard Business School interested in computers. I get the same letter back. I don't pay too much attention. Yes, I'll sign up. And I get a call one day from some harried executive. And he said, Mr. Anderson, I don't know who you are, but if I don't interview you by this Friday, I have to send four letters all the way upstairs. <laughs> I am here in Cambridge to recruit at MIT and Harvard. When can we get together? I said, well, I've got a basketball game. I, and he said, no, you don't understand. It goes all the way to the top. And I thought this was very interesting, but I, I started to get interested in how technology mm -hmm. changes the status quo. Mm -hmm. And when things change, the old order begin to dieth and the new order arises. Are the IBM in those days... I mean, what a powerhouse. It's almost hard to describe it for, you know, people that are, you know, in their 20s today because uh, everyone knows Google and Facebook and Amazon. Uh, but it's almost like IBM was a combination. Like, was there anyone in second place? They were, they were... <laughs> it was called uh, IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> the other dwarfs were all the other computer companies, you know, um, uh, Rand, um, Burroughs, NCR. Together, their profits didn't equal IBM's R&D budget. Um, it was seen as a fortress. Uh, I ran seminars year after year on IBM the next five years, where we'd look where they were in semiconductors, where they were in new mm. business. Everybody with, needed to know because they yes, were ahead of the game. Because they were competing with everybody. Either I was their customer or I was their competitor. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, obviously something that I was paying attention to and was wondering where the new technology would come from and what the new applications are. Right. So let's talk about some of the new new technologies uh, over the years. So you, you, you knew a lot of the kind of the business builders in, in tech throughout that era. I got a call one day from a man named Phil Purcell. Didn't know the man. He said, uh, I'm senior vice president of strategy at Sears Roebuck. Sears clearly the Walmart of the day. I've been reading what you're saying about computers and communications changing the world, and I think you're right. Come out to Chicago to see me. I went out to Chicago, I met Purcell, who had turned out to be the youngest managing partner in McKinsey's history. At 28, he ran the Chicago office. Mm -hmm. And we did some work for, 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 uh, for Phil, and he said, okay, I want you to come to Woodstock, Illinois, and present to the 80 most senior people at Sears. I said, why do I have to do that? You understand it, and Mr. Telling, the CEO, understands it. He said, Howard, Sears is a merchandising company. If the merchants don't get it, we don't get it. And bring some of your low-life friends with you when you come out. <laughs> One of my low-life friends was Bill Gates. Uh-huh. What year are we talking about now, we more or less? We are talking about probably 1978. Okay. 78. Um, so this is before the IBM PC, PC even. Absolutely. So really early days. And I said, uh, Bill, I need you to come to Chicago 
to talk to the senior people at Sears about PCs in the new world. Howard, you know that IBM, excuse me, that Sears is a big IBM bigot. They buy big computers. Yeah, but you know, the IBM PC is coming out in six months. And there's only two retailers that are gonna have it in the beginning. One, a company called Businessland, and two, Sears. Hmm. Sears is planning on a nationwide system of standalone PC stores. They're going to put three quarters of a billion dollars into this. You could do worse than to suck up to these guys. Gates comes out. He's 27. Mm -hmm. The Sears guys are 57. He's got ADD, rocks back and forth, talks in jargon. The Sears people don't understand him. Yep. They miss him. Ten years later, Purcell becomes chairman of Morgan Stanley. And I go to see him, and he said, Howard, I, you're about the dumbest consultant I've ever hired. Oh, Phil, why would that be? He said, well, when Gates was here, he tried to sell us 20% of Microsoft for $8 million. Why did you not make us take that deal? <laughs> First of all, Phil, Bill Gates wasn't Bill Gates back then. He was just a young software guy. Second, I didn't know he did that, but let me help you out here. 20% of Microsoft today, which was worth about 500 billion then, would be about 100, 125 billion. If you stack that up in $1,000 bills, it would be eight times higher than the Sears Tower. <laughs> and uh, Phil kind of grimaced and <laughs> Now, you know, right now we are hoping that Sears makes it through till January yeah, 1st. Right. Um, but Purcell understood that the world was changing, that um, the standalone store was going to end. He got them into some very interesting business. Discover Card was one of the things they did. He bought, uh, they bought brokerage companies. They began to start to think in terms of online systems. So Sears did have part of the right answer. Um, almost the same story with Steve Jobs, who would come to our early conferences and want to give demos. So if you're there early enough and you're lucky enough, you can see some of the people that would change the world. So what was Steve Jobs like? Uh, impossible to deal with. <laughs> uh, his sister once wrote a book about an entrepreneur who was so self-indulged um, that he couldn't be bothered flushing the toilet when he used it. Who do you think she was talking about? Oh, boy. So you knew both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Did they talk to each other? Um, <laughs> they were polite to each other. They were mortal enemies for a while. At one point, Bill Gates saved Apple. And uh, he gave them loans and whatever. At one point, they needed each other. Um, Gates drove people crazy in his own company because he was a better technologist than the technology people and a better business person than the business people. They could accept he was good at one, but not, not theirs, yeah. but not both. Not and indeed both. he was. Mm -hmm. I remember being at his, his house once out in um, uh, Seattle, and every room, as you walk through it, would bring up the um, great art 
that he owned into the room as you walked into it. Um, he was one of a kind. Um, he will be remembered as probably one of the greatest philanthropists of our age yeah. long after they forget about him starting the software company. So you, you knew him you know, right in the early days. Are you surprised at all to see kind of the turn of his career with respect to philanthropy and the unbelievable work he's been doing and his foundation uh, around the world? Thank God he married the right woman. Uh-huh. He used to say, I'm not at all interested in philanthropy. Someone else will worry about that. Let me you know, get larger and larger um, uh, piles of money. And then when he married, his wife brought him to think about some of the other issues. He approaches it as a interesting, brilliant venture firm and a technologist. What are the major problems? Which ones should we aim at? He has built uh, an enormously successful analysis firm to help with investments. And to his credit, Warren Buffett has now essentially given Bill Gates his money. Now think about, so the second richest guy in America gives his money to the first richest guy. But Buffett understands why build something when there already is a good model. Someday it will become the Gates-Buffett Foundation or whatever. But yeah, I think the work that he does in philanthropy around the world is as impressive as when the Rockefeller family was stamping out uh, diseases right. around the, around right. the globe. So you think about the um, the rise of the PC. So there's the mainframe, and then there were mini Minis. computers, right, with DEC and other companies. A lot around Boston, right, Route yes. 128. But what what happened to Route 128? As wasn't it kind of like an earlier version of Silicon Valley? It was. In fact, one of my friends was a man named uh, General George Dorio, who started a company called AR&D, American Research and Development. Dorio had been a professor at the Harvard Business School, Mm -hmm. and he started that company. One of its first investments was digital equipment. He put in $70,000 at their inception, and at one time it was worth uh, probably $550 million. The company. Yes. Um, And he started the venture capital industry in the U.S. His graduates jumped out to the West Coast, people like John Doerr and whatever. But, um, yeah, that was a Boston-based phenomena. The difference was, and one of the problems, Boston, when the Vietnam War came up, was a little too close to Washington. So what the technology people would do would take the shuttle down to Washington and put their hands out, and the Pentagon would give them money to do research. California was different. California was a little too far. So what happened out there was the semiconductor developers worked hand in hand Mm -hmm. with the consumer products companies. So they developed commercial markets. Now, Boston had a shot at this. There was a company called Transitron that was quite close to doing what Intel did. They never quite made it. So by having this close coupling of advanced yeah. technology and applications, they thrived. So there's a, there's a locational story um, in this case, because often you think about setting up a company close to you know, your key constituencies, Boston, D.C., it makes a lot of sense. 
But I think what you're also saying is it pushes you down a particular path where there's real money, so you don't have to kind of think about anything else. The government's got plenty of money if, if you can do something for them. And California, they have to be true entrepreneurs. There's another reason, too. Technology doesn't stay in one place. Mm. Uh, example, after the Second World War, the petroleum companies had to go find oil all over again. During the Depression and the war, they couldn't. They realized that they didn't really know how to measure things, so they went to their uh, geologist. There was this company called Geological Sciences or whatever that had this little subsidiary that made these devices, and it was called Texas Instruments. Mm. So Texas Instruments built the first computer on a chip. Dallas, Texas, and that area around there began to thrive. The University of Texas realized they had to upgrade their electrical engineering department. A young kid named Michael Dell enrolls and starts making personal computers in his dorm room. Now, all of a sudden, you have another epicenter in Texas where technology is pushed by the petroleum industry. If you look at Hewlett Packard, their first customer was Walt Disney. He needed devices uh, to make some of his advanced movies at the time. Mm -hmm. So you do need that customer. What you need is a couple things. The first thing you need is a first-rate engineering school. With all due respect to music and art and all that, and you need an engineering school. You need some templates around, companies that have done it, so that someone working for a bigger company can say, I knew that, that team, they went off, I can do the same thing. And you need some sophisticated venture capital mm. that understands risk, that understands there are no assets that will guarantee their involvement, uh, but there's an awful lot of people that want to do something. After the Second World War, all these people came back. One of the best things America ever did was providing money for education for veterans. They came back. They had lost four or five years. They wanted to start a company. And these are the people that were early on in Silicon Valley, early on in 128. And these are the reasons that the America, the American engine was fueled by new companies. And the rest of the world, even today, I mean, China is China. Israel's got a big venture, not just venture capital, but high-tech sector. But it's, it seems like it's America, maybe it's not going to last, but it still is the center. And Silicon Valley is probably the center of that, even though now we talk about, what do we call it in L.A., uh, Silicon Beach or New York, uh, Silicon Alley or whatever. So we got all these kind of silly, silly names. But, um, uh, but America is still, still the place. And a lot of people would say, well, it's because of this, this entrepreneurial culture that exists. People are always moving. You know, we, we were joking earlier. People go to school somewhere else. You give up on a lot of the past. You're always trying to, and it's, it's almost in the, the American DNA. What do you, what do you make a, of, of that explanation? I was in Israel two weeks ago. Israel has more venture capitalists than it does rabbis. There's one startup for every 2,000 people in Israel. Um, I was talking to some of the people who were involved in Russia, and one of the key people inside the Russian government said, what can we do to be, what was Israel's secret? I said, uh, 
one million Russian em immigrants moving <laughs> to Israel. With tremendous technical skills and desire to create something new. And Israel would retrain civil engineers to uh -huh. be commercial engineers. And this Russian um, executive in the government said, do you think they'll want to come back? And I said, would you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, you think about, um, and we'll talk about more of Silicon Valley or high tech today, but you, you made me think about when you said, you know, the, the men were coming back from the war and the GI Bill and going back to school, but it made me think about women. And uh, when you go back in the era that you were kind of building your company, and even today, uh, and it's become now finally, I guess, recognized as a big issue, um, whether it's discrimination against women, both in venture capital and in high tech, or even if you don't want to go there, the fact of the matter is the numbers are greatly imbalanced. Um, I don't know the data if they're worse in Silicon Valley than they are in you know, banking, let's say. Uh, maybe it's the same across the board. But um, are there examples, if you go back, are there, are there some women um, uh, tech entrepreneurs that you work with over the years, or was it really 100% uh, male? And probably in those days, in the earlier days, it was all American, because today we have people from all over the world that come here. Um, it was always 95%. There were very few women venture capitalists. I don't believe that one should go look for women entrepreneurs. I think you look for good companies. If they have a um, woman as CEO, fine. Uh, I am distrustful of married couples who start a company. Why is that? Only one or two things happen. If they're both on the board, they will both vote together on all issues, and you don't necessarily want that. Or they get divorced, which happens often, and then you have an another set of yes. problems. Mm -hmm. um, the two people who started Cisco worked on computing computer platforms they couldn't talk to each other. They wanted to send mash notes to each other electronically. There was no way to do it. So they invented Cisco, which was a router that did that. Those are the things that can, you know, can instigate, instigate a great company. Um, I look at talent. More women are now taking science courses. Mm -hmm. They are well regarded. You have situations like Theranos which has probably put back 10 years. And that's Elizabeth Holmes. That was the company in, in, in the medical side. The pinprick uh, to collect blood, that was going to do a test um, of all sorts of different um, markers and didn't, didn't work. Outrageous ambition. She was called the female Steve Jobs. People who had an awful lot of experience, like Rupert Murdoch, would drop 100 or $150 million in the company. Um, so that happens. If I had to invest in any company, and I can only pick one criteria, show me someone who was accepted in the computer science department of the Indian Institute of Technology, who has emigrated to the United States, sight unseen, I would invest in that company because those people show ambition, they show drive, they show raw intelligence, and they have built some great companies. Um, you know, you get more than one choice of what you can pick. But in one, we have benefited more from anything else that our educational institutions bring in some 
first-rate people, and by and large, a lot of them want to stay here. Okay, we we, we got to talk about immigration because uh, you're talking about it, and and the uh, unbelievable scenario we're in in America in 2019, where. Um, world-class, great talent around the world um, is finding it difficult. Actually, we have that with some of, our, some of our own MBA students from other countries that cannot stay in the U.S. even though they want to. And actually, just um, um, the other day, I was, um, I was a kid at Dartmouth who's just graduating with an engineering degree, and he's from Africa. And he wanted my advice about career choices and things like that. And we talked about it. And his primary thing he's worried about is which company is going to give him a, a reasonable chance of getting an H-1B visa. And this is a guy that grew up in Rwanda, war-torn. You can imagine what his life was like growing up. And somehow he ends up getting accepted, even knowing about it, but getting accepted at Dartmouth, takes an engineering degree, which is close to the toughest degree you're going to get at an undergraduate level. Uh, and has offers from multiple companies. And this is a kid that, that might not be able, and wants to stay, at least for a period of time, before he wants to go back and, and build business in where, where he's from, which is, the, I mean, you don't get a better story than that. But yet, you know, we have this, this, this barrier that will make it very difficult for him to do it. Um, we lose when that happens. We lose. We, we lose and we lose. Um, I guess not much else to say uh, other than everyone should vote. Vote as you see fit, but exactly. talent is so valuable, it can go anywhere. Uh, we have to find a way to keep that talent. Uh, we have to find a way that it's just not money that gets you in here and gets you a visa, um, but it is talent. We train the world. Uh, we still have the best educational infrastructure. Um, and it is you know, about the best thing we can do is build new companies. Uh, my wife does an awful lot of things with hospitals and wonderful charities. I believe the most productive thing we can do is help build new companies because they employ people, they build security, they are a place that becomes a lightning rod for good new ideas. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's take a, a short break. When we come back, Howard, we'll talk about some of these new companies, some that you're investing in, and then some kind of household names and get your take on what's going on with the, with the giants of, uh, of technology today. We'll be right back. We're back with Howard Anderson. So, Howard, uh, let's talk about some of the uh, giants in the technology world today. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Amazon. I have Prime. And uh, I'll just tell you, uh, kind of a crazy, th it's not crazy, it's like everyone has a version of this. We had some students over at our house not that long ago, and they insisted, one, one guy insisted on doing the dishes because we made dinner or whatever, and he dropped something. I don't even remember what or broke something. And I said, don't worry about it. It's like 10 bucks. It doesn't matter. And he said, okay, professor, okay. And he goes on his phone, his, his iPhone, and he, you know, he just orders from Amazon instantly. And the next day, it's there. What, I don't even remember what it was. And this is the way that the world works today. What, 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 do you, what do you make of this company? I think we will put Jeff Bezos down as one of the three or four best business people in history. Really? Think about where he started. He started with books, and his original idea was instant gratification almost, and if you bought a book from Amazon, he would contact the publisher and they would ship you one book. What he quickly found out was the publishers couldn't do that. They couldn't do it well. He needed to have a warehouse, and he would dominate books. But think also 
about Kindle. Now, if I wanted that book, I might get it in a day, I might get it in two days. By pushing Kindle, instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You want it, you hit a few buttons, you get it electronically. You get it in seconds. You get it in seconds. The difference was there's two kinds of products. There are products that are atoms, books, and there are, problem, there are products that are electrons. What products are electrons? Well, books can be electrons. Money can be electrons. Insurance can be electrons. Banking can be electrons. Movies can be electrons. Music is electrons. Electrons do not punish you the way that Adams do. But he's in both businesses. He scares the bejesus mm. out of every pharmaceutical company. He scares the bejesus out of bankers. Could he do all these things? He has a relationship almost with everybody in America. Uh, he is building new businesses all the time. And he realizes there is no grand plan. Mm -hmm. He just feels that he has the analytical team and the skills to dominate that business. Yeah. Um, and he is doing it, and he is, from the consumer point of view, Amazon's great. Everyone who uses Amazon Prime swears by it, whether he drops that package off on your doorstep someday electronically uh, with uh, devices that are uh, flying in the sky without whatever. Drones, It doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, yeah, obviously he'll, he'll be that way. Um, but a brilliant executive with great vision and great execution. Yeah. How, how, I mean, wh how, what kind of company is this that they could go into – any business, you know, we, for, there used to be conglomerates around, and they did well in a different stage of business, mostly because capital markets didn't provide enough um, cash for small entrepreneurial companies, so the big companies became banks in a sense. And then that all fell apart because it turns out it's very hard to do more than one or two things really, really well. And we, we had the drive towards becoming specialists and disintermediation of value change and all those other kind of strategy type things that have, that have happened. But here comes Amazon, and they're in every business. How, how is that possible, even? How could uh, they be, how could this they is be what the, well, the pure players in different markets? Look at Toys R Us, mm -hmm. dominant company in their business. They were? Bang. Some of the companies have managed so far to avoid being Amazoned. Um, what kind of companies have avoided that? Well, if I wanted a big tub of peanut butter, where might I go if I wanted to do that? What kind of store might I go? You might go to a nice grocery store. And in a bigger grocery store, there's another company out there that comes to mind. If you wanted to buy big tubs and you wanted... Well, there's Costco, there's oh, Walmart. Oh, Costco. Let's talk <laughs> about Costco for a moment. Mm -hmm. Now, Costco seems to have avoided the problem yeah. of yeah. this. Costco only carries about 400 items. A typical supermarket will have 15,000 items. Wow. Right? Costco has built a relationship with a consumer that withstands even Amazon. They don't have sales. They mark their products up about 14%. They are everywhere. So you can fight right. Amazon. Which is a very low markup, 14%. Yeah, very low. And in fact, if... Um, 
I would have the president come to my class at MIT, and he would say he would come into a store, and if they were charging 18 percent, he would make them lower their prices. His idea was con consistent value. Right. Um, so you see companies like that. Um, what you also will see very shortly is Amazon discontinuing some items where there is no profit to be made. Amazon's made a couple interesting acquisitions, haven't they? Whole Foods is the big one, isn't it? Whole Foods, which seems to be they're at the other end of the spectrum. Also, you notice that Beatsos owns the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Do you think publishing is a good business to be into? Now, that's one he's got as his little hobby, one well, of many hobbies, when you actually. think about it, what gets companies into trouble is monopolization. The Washington Post has one very strong constituency, U.S. government. By having the major publication in the major market, who cares whether it makes money or not, mm -hmm. as supposedly they are today, it has the position to recognize problems early. Bill Gates got into major problems with antitrust law. Right. And basically because he didn't believe that he was susceptible to that. It turned out he was wrong. I see Bezos playing three-dimensional chess when the rest of the industry is back to checkers. Why do you think um, Bezos or Amazon went to, you know, they had this gigantic national competition to see where they would they would put their new their second headquarters and uh, I was thinking well maybe they'd go kind of consistent with your point about thinking about the political environment as well maybe they would go to a, a red state uh, like Atlanta which is a pretty powerful dynamic uh, business city um, but they went to New York and Washington which is kind of your classic old old school Northeast liberal states well they went to Washington because there is a population of talented software people who get paid government wages. So there was an enormous body of people mm. uh, who would gravitate towards there. It's dangerous to have all your assets in one location. Um, right now in Seattle, they own pretty much every major building around. Hmm. They, are, they are the dominant company, the way that Boeing used to be the dominant company up yeah. there. So you do want to spread it around. Uh, you see... New York, perhaps the same way. They got some wonderful tax advantages along the way. Whether they hire 50,000 people or not, we'll see. Uh, yes, it was kind yeah, of interesting yeah. to mm -hmm. see all these companies competing, and eventually they will be probably in more states. But they didn't do it just, just for political reasons. I think they did it because they wanted some uh, – they, they didn't want to be held hostage by any one state. Right, right. So let's, let's – uh Let's ask you real quick about a few other kind of the global and tech uh, tech um, giants, uh, starting with uh, with Google. What what's what's happening with Google? What's going to happen? Google's got a few problems these days, as you may see. Um, it's one thing to be an attacker attacking the big boys, but if you're really successful, you become one of the big boys, and Google is. Um, Google, if you remember, wasn't even the first one of the search engines. That's right. Uh, Asta uh, Vista um, from Digital mm. was one. And he, they ran through all of those. They discovered one wonderful thing, which is how to sell advertising. The advertising industry is in a 
complete disarray now. They don't know how to compete with Google. John Wanamaker once said that half the money he spent on advertising was wasted. He just didn't know which half. Mm -hmm. With Google, you begin to know what works. Yeah. Um, so yes, he is a major factor in that business also. But you can begin to make more sense of your marketing dollars. You can buy keywords. If you are in cybersecurity, you can buy a few words and find some set of leads. So the job of mm -hmm. the salesperson is much more focused now. So Google is both the purveyor of knowledge and the user of knowledge. Probably the strongest asset that Amazon has, by the way, is Amazon Technology Services, which in itself is a billion and a half business. What they have done is built these farms, as has Google, that does enormous processing. And by selling the excess capacity, they become a provider, which has made us in the venture industry very happy. We no longer have to spend $20 million buying computers for our startups. They use uh, Amazon Web Services, and that does them very well for at least the first several years. They're buying excess capacity mm -hmm. from Amazon, and Amazon gets to see which industries and which products are becoming very attractive. It is a wonderful distant early warning system for right. Amazon. Not just the making them money, but they have this insight. Yes. So it's interesting also to compare Amazon and Google with respect to their um, their own internal entrepreneurship and entry of new businesses. So Google has these moonshots and they do all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, remember Google Glasses? And, yes. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Many of them have, have failed. I mean, I don't know whether Android makes any money, uh, but, but that's kind of maybe the most well-known after... Um, after uh, after search, um, and Amazon, as we talked about, is in a lot of different businesses. But they, it seems like they've taken they've they've gone towards a diversification strategy in, in different in different ways. Um, with with Amazon, almost I don't know, building on their their kind of core skills and capability, and Google looking for the next the next Google, almost the next home run. It's too early to say whether those glasses that Amazon was talking about are a failure. Let me give you an example. Let's fast forward 10 years. You are at a reunion from the Dartmouth class of whatever, and you're wearing your glasses. And as someone approaches you, your glasses whisper in your ear. That's Joe Smith. He was top class of 2004. His wife's name is Marjorie. There are two kids, Joe and whatever, mm -hmm. and it's telling you all this information. Mm -hmm. We're going to record everything in the future. We will record this meeting. You will be able to call up any of this. I think I had a meeting with young Howard Anderson, and when was that? It will tell you and mm -hmm. do the whole thing. So look at that as an early kind of computer, right. kind of kludgy, didn't work great. But it was the first step. Yeah. And sometimes these failures, the learning is great and you learn how to do it. Like even, well, you know this from the old days of FedEx. They were in the fax business. And that was a big failure. But I think they learned a lot about technology. I can tell you about that business. I bet. I got a call one day from the CEO of Federal Express. And he said, uh, Howard, I've been reading your stuff about electronic mail. Come down and see me. Okay. I said, well, you know, it's really hard to get to your part of Tennessee. Um, he said, Howard, cut the crap. What is it you want? I said, I want to fly one of the planes, in one of the planes. Where, uh, grumble, grumble. 
they made me an employee for the night to go down and see Fred Smith. And I explained to Fred where the world, he wanted to know all about facsimile, which I knew a lot about. He's got his senior IT person there, a guy named Jim Barksdale. Barksdale then uh, was the IT person. Mm -hmm. They tried to talk him out of it. But Fred Smith built this enormous business on his insight when he was a junior at Yale and wrote a book, uh, wrote his paper on distribution. So he went ahead and he blew through about a half a billion dollars. We'll never know how much. It was pretty much hidden. But think what FedEx has done with that kind of insight. Mm -hmm. In the old days, if you lost a product, you would call up an 800 number, and they had professional flat catchers. Oh, my God, Mr. Anderson, we lost your package. We'll call you back every hour while we're looking for it. Then they got a little bit smarter. They said, uh, Mr. Anderson, you're a good customer of FedEx. And because you're a good customer, we're going to let you track your own package. Just put the number in, and you can see where it is at any position. Mm -hmm. Huh. They get rid of these mm -hmm. airplane hangers full of people and all the expensive 800 numbers. I am now a computer operator, and I think I've got a great advantage because I can track my own package. Mm -hmm. Huh. That kind of thinking in terms of customer service is why FedEx is FedEx, and some of the early freight forwarders are no longer in business. Right. So that, oh, Barksdale goes on to run all of Craig McCaw's wireless companies, and then he starts another company that he sells off um, uh, to some other big companies. And if you read the last of Michael Lewis's book, the one before the last, when he talks about this high-speed line from Chicago to New York, mm. that's Jim Barksdale, mm. who was his IT person. Wow. Wow. Um, what about Facebook? Ah, You knew I'd ask you about that. Yes, of course you would. Um, we ha when I teach my classes at Dartmouth, I sometimes want to show a little modesty. And I said, I don't know why you students are actually listening to me. Do you want to hear how my venture firm turned down Facebook? Everyone pays attention. Hmm. Sophomore year, Mark Zuckerberg is invited out to Battery Ventures. Which is your firm. My firm. I, I, I co-founded it with two of my friends. To tell us about his idea for this company. We were one block over the line from Newton to Wellesley, Massachusetts, where the cab fare doubles. We had to lend Zuckerberg money to get back to Harvard Square. He didn't have money for the cab back. One way, yes, but not when they doubled the fare. Uh. And we turned it down. Why did we turn it down? Mainly because we were too mature. The managing partners mm -hmm. are married. We have mortgages. We live in suburbia. The young associates who we hired right out of college immediately understood what Facebook was. But they were not good enough salespeople to convince us. We all learn from things like that. Just when we started before, when the industry begins to change, sometimes experience is an impediment. They saw what social networking was. They wanted the product. They understood why their friends were on it. And we were still befuddled. That happens to every venture company. We make some wins. We make some losses. Uh, Facebook is an amazing company. They're running out of people 
to buy Facebook. There are two billion around, people around the world who have Facebook accounts. They have made great investments in future products. They see very early what's going to be successful. They overpay at the time, and a year later it looks brilliant. What do you think about all the issues around privacy and uh, it's not just Facebook, but they're yeah. the biggest that have been uh, challenged under attack for um, you know, Russian-fueled campaigns during the election and all yeah. sorts of things like that. Uh, they look silly, mm. and Sheryl Sandberg has taken a hit on her reputation yeah. that all the lean-in books in the world will not overcome. Everybody starts out wanting to do great things. Sometimes the reality of a stock market makes you do actions that you wouldn't otherwise do it. If, you're, if a great part of your employee base owns stock at a certain point and the stock stays high and their options are not yet vested, they can't be really enticed away. When the stock falls, then they have other kinds of problems. Um, I think Facebook is inherently a very decent company, but they had done some indecent acts and that may be one of the reasons why the stock market is not in love with them. Give Zuckerberg credit. He still controls 60% of the stock. Mm. So while he is there, there can be no coup d'etat. However, ambitious and smart people may be one step less willing to go to work for Facebook than they may have just a couple years ago. And that's because of this Yes, it this is. This hit that they've taken. Yes. Which is very interesting about why people take jobs that they do, and there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes people think, you know, money talks, and I'm sure there are, there's, everybody's got a price. But um, brand name, reputation. Challenge. Can I work on an interesting project? Yes. Uh, if you give me a boring project, I will be bored. I want to I be where the smart people are. Right, right. Uh, sometimes I will talk to Chuck students where should I go to work and what industry? And my answer is go find the smart people, mm. not the biggest company, the smartest company. And right now, I don't know who it is, and they probably are not coming to the recruiting office at Tech. You've got to go find them. Yep. You've got to contact them. They may not have a job opening, but if you can go to work for the smart people, they're going to grow, and when they grow, you will grow. You've had a lot of careers, uh, Howard. You've described, of course, Yankee Group and what you created. Um, you're still uh, heavily involved in venture capital, but you've also been a, uh, a teacher at a bunch of top schools uh, from Harvard, MIT to Dartmouth, uh, teaching at Brown, and probably a few others in between as well, and in some other countries. Why, uh, why did you do that? What does it give you that you didn't already have from all these other things you've done? Um, I guess it's a sense of immortality. Mm -hmm. If you can teach the next generation and they can teach the next generation, then you begin to have an impact. I used to say to my students, if you get a great idea for a company, don't wait for this class to end. Just walk right out in the middle. I will not be insulted. Because if you've got a good idea, five other people have the same idea. Mm -hmm. Can you build it? Can you execute on it? And if all else fails, you can always go to work for the employer of last resort, like Goldman Sachs. So that's very interesting what you just said, that five other people have the same idea. Is that mostly true in your experience? Rarely is an idea so brilliant that it hasn't been done before. B 
Bezos didn't build anything that hadn't been built before. It had. He just did it better. Yes, um, when I, I have just invested in a small company that's going to hopefully revolutionize online exercise the way Peloton has done, and they've done a remarkable mm -hmm. job. Um, there's five other companies that are doing kind of the same thing, some overseas, mm -hmm. some here. Uh, we'll put together a good team. Hopefully, we'll raise the right kind of money. They won't make some of the mistakes that others have made. But yeah, usually a, uh, an yeah. idea doesn't occur just to one person. I think that's a really important lesson for a lot of uh, would-be entrepreneurs uh, who might think they've got to have the killer idea no one's ever come up with. I'm sure there are examples, but most of the time, as you say, there are a lot of other pl people playing in the same field. You just got to play better. You got to play smarter. A um, couple of last questions before we wrap up, uh, sure. Howard. Kind of, you, you mentioned your wife, um, Carol, um, and some of the uh, work that she does in the uh, medical sector. But I want to ask you a different type of question. How would you meet? Oh, like everything else, research. <laughs> um, Did you my, have a report over there, the Yankee almost, group on this one? Um, she was going out with one of my classmates. And, uh, and fortunately, he was uh, tall, brilliant, wealthy, good-looking, and personable. So I figured she could do much better than that. And um, he went away for the summer, and he said, why don't you take her out? Because um, I guess his intents weren't as serious as mine. Um, and he's still, you know, someone we both regard very highly. Um, and I just saw her, and she had just graduated from college and um, we've been married it'll be 50 years next may we're already planning a big celebration wow fantastic fantastic last question for you and because uh, you've shared a lot of great uh, advice about about business and actually how to kind of just do it take the reins and you have a great idea walk out of the class start doing it uh the the, the story of you know in the new york times and just grabbing an opportunity that didn't exist uh, at all until you heard something on the radio um if you can go back and give uh, yourself advice when you were, you know, 20 or, or, or just before, you know, when, when you're still in school, certainly before the, the Harvard experience, uh, what, what advice would you give yourself given everything you've done and thought about over, over the years? It's advice I also give to our students. Where will you learn the most the quickest? Uh, if you work for a large company and you are a defender, they won't let you make any mistakes because you are triple backed up. If you can find a company, even if it's paying you less, that is doing interesting things, in five years, is it ever going to matter? No, not that you got paid a few thousand dollars less. Um, find the outliers. Look for the contrarians. Look for where technologies are on the cusp of something interesting. Can you combine, for example, Healthcare and neural computing. Has that been done before? Can we find different combinations? Where are the brightest people? Um, I would have taken much more science courses had I known. Um, I, I think that um, while those that took those science courses labored in labs while everyone else was learning history and art and music, they did real well at cocktail parties. The time comes when all of us have to be computer literate. We have to understand programming. Learning a computer language is probably more important than learning Spanish or Chinese or Russian. You think everyone should be a coder? I think coding ought to be one of the basic skills. We teach basic math. We ought to teach basic coding, at least enough 
so that they're conversant with it. Because it's a language. It is a language, and it's an expertise. And pretty much every company is a technology company now because they're using that technology mm. in unique ways. Um, when they begin to use that technology, they build a distinctive advantage. We know that there's no such thing as an advantage that can't be overcome with time and money. But if, if everything is, how can I build a way so my product or service doesn't become a commodity, then we're looking at technology, and technology is too important to be left to the technologists. Right, right. That's great. A great way to uh, end uh, end our chat, uh, uh, Howard. I'm thinking of, you know, starting in Atlantic City and uh, going doing the various steps and stages and creations that you've done. It, 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 it actually doesn't matter all that much where you start from. Um, I mean, obviously, there are advantages and disadvantages every place, but it's what you do with it. Uh, I think it's the same type of advice for school uh, and for jobs, you know, the quality of what that experience is going to be like is going to depend mostly on you. I mean, other things count, but you're, you're the one. So thanks for sharing these stories. It's been a lot of fun. Howard Anderson. Hey, guys, this is Ben, Sid's producer on the Sidcast. I just snuck into the studio after he left, and he does not know I'm here. I hope you enjoyed his chat with Howard. I sure did. And we have many more great guests to come. For example, next week, we have a two-time Olympic gold medalist who is in the process of crafting her life after sport at the highest level. If you liked the podcast today, tell your family. And if you loved it, please tell everyone else. I really need this to go well because, as you know by the number of podcasts out there, producers are a dime a dozen. And I really need this job as a struggling millennial who, well, happens to live at home with his parents. Once again, thanks so much for listening.